Whatever, whenever you stand praying, forgive. It doesn't say, uh, forgive the people who've shown enough contrition, who've patched up their lives enough. Forgive if you have anything against anyone. Forgive. Well, that has to play into a model of the practice of forgiveness. Forgive us, we say, just as we're fully determined as evidence of your grace in us to forgive our neighbors. Welcome back to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. You're listening to episode 117, and I'm Jared Lichborough. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, Dr. J. Mark Beach concludes his discussion on conditional forgiveness and repentance by describing forgiving as God forgives. Let's hear what he has to say. In this third talk, I would like to finish up in this series of talks on conditional forgiveness and the nature of repentance and how that fits into the forgiveness equation. And in this third talk, I'd like to begin with this business of forgiving like God. I'm all for it, that we should forgive like God. But do we really know what we're saying when we say forgiving like God? It's important that we see that God forgives us as sinners in the way of uh, uniting us to Christ by faith. And you can't discount that. You can't erase that pivotal and central role. Union with Christ, then, let's be clear, includes rebirth and renewal, but none of that forming the basis for being forgiven. Union with Christ brings us to conversion, which is faith and repentance. But none of that is a good work to earn forgiveness. Uh, union with Christ is includes our justification, uh, forgiveness of sins, being reckoned right in God's sight, even being reckoned as fulfillers of the law in all of its uh, righteousness. A union with Christ entails being adopted as a son or daughter of God. You're included in the family of God. You're counted as his very own. Union with Christ also brings about a renewal, a dying to old self, a coming to life of new self, a sanctification, and a, pers- a persevering in faith, a-, a-, a continuing ahead, struggles of faith, with mixed with doubts, backsliding perhaps, but God keeps us going. In union with Christ, every blessing we have is in him, and finally bringing us to the glory to come. Now, that's a much more secure basis, and it's the sole basis upon which God forgives us, not some contribution of ours. The only kind of conditionality is that of a passivity, a receptivity, a consequence of a grace that proceeds and runs ahead of us. So our puny repentance, and admit, it's puny in God's sight. It's misinformed, it's inadequate, and it's not commensurate with the the forgiveness granted in any way. It doesn't make us forgivable people. 
Rather, it simply renders us empty-handed to receive in the way of faith what God grants and bestows. Uh, One way we can uh, examine this is by looking at the Heidelberg Catechism and its exposition of the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, This is a highly regarded catechism within the Reformation era, and many Reformed believers are quite familiar with it. And in Lord's Day 51, question answer 126, it asks the question, what does the fifth request or petition mean? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors means, here's the answer, because of Christ's blood, do not hold against us poor sinners that we are any of the sins we do or the evil that constantly clings to us, the evil nature that clings to us. Forgive us just as we are fully determined as evidence of your grace in us to forgive our neighbors. So the catechism says we're forgiven because of Christ's blood. We plead a payment made for our sins by our Redeemer. We plead a stake in his saving work. And thus we do not plead our faith. We do not plead our repentance. We don't plead our contrition, our penitence, our good intentions, our new resolve to live better. We don't plead to God uh, to be pardoned for our, our sins because we're going to try harder and do better. We plead the blood of Christ plus nothing else. And if we don't do that, we have sort of abandoned the biblical teaching of, of uh, the Protestant Reformation and sound doctrine. In pleading Christ's blood, then, we acknowledge that to be forgiven refers not only to specific and particular sins, many of which we know of, some of which we're blind about. We plead, yes, very specific sins, sins plenty, but we also confess our sinful desires, our sinful nature, which constantly clings to us. That's rather broad and big, but it's important. Do not hold against us our sins. Do not hold against us our sinful propensities. Don't hold against us the taint and depravity of our nature. Don't hold against us. Don't reckon us, reckon us guilty, damnable, Lord, condemnable because of the sins we do or the continuing sinful inclinations that inhabits our heart. Uh, Lord, we're befouled people that you cleanse, but we need constant cleansing. I need forgiveness of sins I know and of sins I don't know. I need forgiveness of sins I can confess with sense and understanding and ones I'm blind to. I need your grace to outpace my repentance. You want God to be less gracious than that? Or that the the blood of Christ only atoned for your repented of sins? It's so unhelpful to travel that model that some are advocating today. The Heidelberg reminds us that as we pray this prayer and as we seek to practice forgiveness ourselves, and that's so important, 
We do so as poor sinners. It has that phrase. Don't hold against us poor sinners that we are. It means that Jesus teaches us to forgive sins while we recognize we are fellow sinners. Well, that puts a little different spin on things. He teaches us to ask for forgiveness while we practice forgiveness to fellow sinners. Jesus teaches us to look for divine grace while we practice human grace. And he teaches us to seek pardon while we bestow the same. So as we confess sins to God, especially our, our sins against others whom we've harmed, we seek to confess our sins to them as well. Our confession of sin involves a confession about our sins and our sinfulness and our inclinations to sin. So we ask forgiveness for the evil that constantly clings to us. Well, that can be vague, and it can even be, unbeknownst to me, Lord, forgive me. I need your grace, your forgiveness, to far outpace my understanding of it. In Mark eleven twenty five, Jesus says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, uh, forgive, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. The Heidelberg bids us to pray that petition in a disposition of free grace, as Mark does. It's very interesting. Whatever, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. It doesn't say, uh, forgive the people who've shown enough contrition, who've patched up their lives enough. Forgive if you have anything against anyone. Forgive. Well, that has to play into a model of the practice of forgiveness. Forgive us, we say, just as we're fully determined as evidence of your grace in us to forgive our neighbors. And this shows us that the practice of forgiveness to others images God's grace toward us as sinners. Indeed, we are like God, and we forgive like God. By all means, let us do so. Not because we're God, not because we're righteous like God, but because we have the same rights like God. Because, that is, we are not that we have the same rights like God, but because we are to be loving and gracious like God. I sometimes like to ask people, how much of God's grace can you live without? How, how much less merciful would you have God be toward you? I, I would be shocked to say, yeah, I could do with less grace. I could do with less mercy. I could do with less love from God. What absurdity. Of course not. We need God's overflowing, ever-abounding, super-abounding grace to us. So failure to forgive is to live as if you're still in death and bondage. Because in Christ Jesus, we are new Exodus people. We have been delivered all by free grace, not because we repented hard enough. But his initiative took the lead, brought us out of bondage, and that very act brings us to repentance. And when we get that backwards, we get the gospel wrong. And that's why this is such an important topic. So Jesus, who takes his new Exodus people, brings him into the promised land of his forgiveness and grace, 
now calls them to live the grace that they've received. And that's why we seek to forgive our neighbors from the heart. That's why when we stand praying in front of a God whose grace and forgiveness we need, we have a heart of forgiveness towards those who perhaps haven't repented, perhaps uh, have not grasped the depths of their sin, or perhaps never going to. So we can be eaten up with anger and revenge and vengeance and even an anger, let the Lord avenge them. Indeed, the Lord will. God is a just God. But God can avenge us our unrepented sins too, if you want to think of it like that. But believers aren't under the wrath of God. They're under fatherly discipline, correction. Lord, yes, bring us to an awareness of all of our sins, that we make make remedy in a reformed, redirected life and seek blessing towards those in our care. Maybe I could uh, close this out a little bit by being aware of that a number of the if clauses we get in the New Testament are easily misconstrued. If this, then that. So if then is this hard necessity without which the consequence won't follow. But in the Greek language, uh, the if clauses can function. It's true in English as well. We just don't analyze grammatically the nature of sentences. But uh, there's a kind of third-class conditional sentence in which basically what's proposed is uncertain of fulfillment but very likely to incur, to occur. If this, and it most certainly likely will occur, then that. Uh, when someone, if, I con- if we confess our sins, uh, not will you or won't you, if you confess our sins, and as believers we most certainly inevitably will, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. So it's not a conditionality in which your good work of repentance earns the response of forgiveness, but the promise of a good and gracious God who's already extended all the redemptive work to save is the same God then who says, if you confess your sins, and yes, indeed, this will eventually transpire, there's the God who you can depend upon, that you're, you're, you can be assured that you are in his arms, you are in his embrace, and you are indeed forgiven. So that could, we could spend a lot more time on the nature of conditionality and the sort of if clauses we find in the New Testament. But um, in this series of talks, I've just tried to help believers see that repentance is uh, very much part of the Christian life. It's part of conversion, faith, and repentance. But it's by faith we embrace Christ. And repentance is not uh, co-instrumental in that. Rather, by repentance, we make a change of heart, a change of direction, a regret, a remorse. And hopefully, turning away from that, we turn to the Christ whose embrace and grace is indeed certain. 
We're thankful for Dr. Beach and his willingness to speak on this topic of conditional forgiveness over three episodes. You can read more about this. This series of episodes was inspired by Dr. Beach's Mid-America Journal of Theology article titled Forgiving Like God, Some Reflections on the Idea of Conditional Forgiveness. You can read more in the 2015 issue of the article at midamerica.edu slash journal. We turn next week to the wisdom of Old Testament professor Reverend Mark Vanderhart, who will give biblical counsel on being Christ-like in conflict. He's going to be using a few events in the Old Testament for illustration. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.